Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. Don't forget that our supporting partner this month is Wahoo. They've got you covered with a great range of products to support your training and riding. I use Wahoo products in my training for the EWS 100. First up, their GPS watch, the Element Rival, which provides you with everything you need to track your training right there on your wrist. On the bike, I use the Element Bolt, which is a great little GPS computer with customizable, easy-to-read displays, which also connects to your phone to make it set up a cinch. The Smart Trainer, the Wahoo Kicker, was the perfect addition to my garage for that targeted training, and you can hook it up to Wahoo X, their online training and virtual racing platform, and you never know, you might even enjoy that indoor training. Combine all those with their super soft and comfortable heart rate strap, the ticker, and you're on to a winner. Check out all they have to offer over at wahoofitness.com. While you're here, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. There's buttons to help you get that done over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Merch is available. If you want to support the show, that's over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. And issue two of our print project, Downtime EP, is now available over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. All the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. You can also get in touch and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook by heading to at downtimepodcast. All right, it's time for part two of my conversation with Martin Whiteley. This time, we're going to be chatting about his work with Red Bull, athlete management, the Discovery Channel takeover, and plenty more. So without further ado, here's Martin Whiteley. reflecting on many years of, of team management up to this point what are the kind of the best parts and the worst parts of that for you um well, that's pretty easy the worst parts um uh flight delays cancellations things that you can't control that are in your logistics planning that suddenly get thrown out the window and you need to rejig yeah um a rider getting injured you have got to rejig that i don't like seeing a rider injured and that sucks so they're not fun when you see someone you know, stop from realizing their dream by something they couldn't control. Um, you know, so, you know, I hate seeing someone puncture when they're on a winning run. Those sorts of things yeah. bum you out. But what I really hate is is the canceled flights or, or disruptions to our planning. Um, and what I love is being in that 15 square meters of the team manager's area where you're very privileged to have a view of the finish line and the, the giant screen and have the crowd behind you as a, as a boom box um, and have a rider in the game for a win. And the adrenaline, the goosebumps and everything that goes with that, it's really, like I said before, the, the finish line at Fort William, that, that square, 15, 15 square metres is hallowed ground, you know, and you pinch yourself, I'm so privileged to be in this position, to be working with a rider that might actually win this race in front of this amazing crowd. It's really, really special. You, you, I've come into this as a fan and I'm always a fan. I never lose sight of that. And yeah. so I don't have a, you know, a warped opinion of what my role is here mm -hmm. other than to help the riders achieve their goals. Yeah. And, and when they do, it's really, really special. And you can pretty much feel it through the ground there when everyone's stamping on the ground in the, uh, yeah. in the seat here. Yeah. And I'm not a fan of the venue. I'll be honest about that in general. But that finish bowl, if we could transplant that to every race, 
it's amazing that the crowd are not only enthusiastic, they're extremely knowledgeable. They know as much about the sport as nearly anybody else. When they come to the paddock and they meet us at the team pits, they're rattling off stats and this and that. And, and I say, is that right? Yeah, you're probably right. You know, like they know their stuff. And so they're not just people who've walked in off the street to watch a sport. They, they really know their sport and yeah. they're downhilling. So I love that. And, you know, I've been in, you know, in Wyndham as well. It was an amazing finish line for Gwyn to win in America. Yeah. That was, you know, so and Greg winning in Brazil, Matty winning in Brazil, huge fan base there. Those places, you know, they're, they're very special. They stay with you for a long, long time when you've had success in front of an amazing, appreciative crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are days where you just, you know, when Oshin lost the overall in a crash in Portugal when it was in his hands and you feel for him, you feel for his family, you feel for everybody and it's just like, well, there's always next year. You've got to move on. You can't dwell on it. It's it's these things happen, and um, and you learn from them. Yeah, the yeah. rider learns from them. So, yeah. yeah, you take the good with the bad. But the, when the good's good, it's really really good. Yeah. What what communication do you have? Because I'm sure I've seen you with like a little earpiece in mm. when you're in that that finished box. Yeah, we have. Um, so, I have probably five or six staff on radio at any one time, and. Uh, that will change depending on whether it's qualies or practice. Uh-huh. Um, so, photographer, videographer will be on 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 radio when it's practice time because okay. they want to know when riders are going up and when they're going to be coming down. Mm-hmm. And then on race day, the videographer, photographer will be off radio and it'll be all the mechanics and support staff. So, Paul and I are in constant contact. Whether it's about anti-doping numbers or um, Paul's watching splits for me and giving me okay. calls on where he should be at this time. Because I'm often watching the big screen and not the live timing, and the live timing okay. gives you a lot more. So Paul might be watching one or the other, and then the mechanics are at the top, being sports psychologists before the start. You know, getting their riders into the groove, and then they'll just get on to say that a rider's on course. Even though we'll see the clock start, I want confirmation that our rider's on course. Okay. Very rarely is he he's not on course. We had a problem with Nico and Lenzerheide where he didn't have the right back protection in and he didn't start. Mm-hmm. And so you need your mechanic to confirm what's going on up there, what the commissaires are doing. So, But we don't chatter. I, I don't find the radio during the week, maybe in practice, there'll be some shenanigans on the radio, <laughs> but on race day, short, sharp and sweet, just get the job done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then once we've had a result, confirming it to all the staff that are up on the hill, what it is, where we need to be, everyone come down to the podium, bring the race bike in, do this, do that. So, yeah, there's a there's a, just a pattern and it just works from week to week. Yeah, and you're living it all through that earpiece and, and whatever you're getting through the screen, I guess, which isn't always what you want. Right? I've been at a number of races where you're like, stop, I want to see this. Like, Yeah, I mean, if I'm honest, I would learn more sitting in the truck watching the Red Bull coverage than being in the finish line. Mm-hmm. I would see a lot more of the run or lot more of everybody else's run not be distracted i won't have someone beside me saying hey when's your guy going what's this happening and what the uci say about this and all sorts of chats going on you can just focus and so i've enjoyed that this year if i'm honest i've learned a lot from watching it on tv and the same with formula one i learn a lot more than if i go to a race yeah i enjoy it more you've said that too that you find it it's and you know you have to compliment them on their coverage it's been extraordinary yeah. this past year and a half it definitely has yeah and you're a part of that which many people probably don't realize talk to us yeah. about that well i wasn't patting myself on the back then that was more <laughs> about the way they cover it yeah and and the limitations they have which a lot of people whinge about they don't understand how many limitations there are in putting on a a, a live broadcast of a mountain bike race mm-hmm. 
Um, to broadcast an Olympic mountain bike cross country, you needed 43 cameras. I mean, it, there's no way they can do that. So yeah. I think they do a really good job with the limitations they have. Um, yeah, my, my job with them is I, I do the research. So all the data of who's the first Romanian rider to ever win and how many how many times has Matthias Flukiger come second or whatever they ask me to do. They want to know the, the data. So I do a, a data sheet for every race, which is all the previous podiums, who's the number one winner of all time of World Cups, down to number six, different things, things that might pop up. For example, Mona Mittelvalna might have been the youngest cross-country woman ever to win, so they need to know date of birth, when that was, who yeah. was the last one. So sometimes you'll see these stories like, will Amri Perion be the first man ever to win four races in a row or mm -hmm. whatever it is? That all comes from data going back to 1991 or 93 that I have here mm -hmm. that I put together stories and ideas for them. Um, you know, if it's Greg Minard's 150th race, that's something I'll give them before the race so they yeah. know that's coming up. So, yeah, it's um, it's been a, a cool little job been doing for five years or so. Am I right in thinking you're the only person on the planet that has all of that data? Yeah, not by choice. So <laughs> I when I worked at the UCI, we had all the result sheets from all the World Cups, hard copies, and they were... Um, stored at the mountain bike coordinator's desk mm -hmm. and so anytime I needed to look at that it was there then when we were moving from the offices that the UCI had into their new big velodrome in Egg, they said during this transition time we need to put all of our documentation into storage and so that's what I did put everything in storage and I didn't move to the new building so I, I left the UCI before then and apparently they were in storage for a year or two. And then when they went to get all the documents, not just mountain bike, everybody's documents, yeah. it had all gone. They hadn't paid their bill on the storage unit and it was all cleared out. No way. So I fortunately had put it all into my computer just for my own interest. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's where it is. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. But like I say, not by choice. I, yeah. in all good faith, wanted the UCI to have those records and I donated some of my own records from the early Australian mountain bike days and stuff that I lost as well yeah it was even a video cassette from the the first world championships that was commercially available but it no longer is and yeah. that was there so there was lots of stuff that I donated to the uh -huh. the archive because it was important for the history of the sport definitely so I honestly and something similar happened in Australia as well so it's weird that people don't pay their story I mean that's why there's a, all these programs on storage with lockers people don't pay and they yeah, lose it crazy so yeah um, fortunately yeah a lot of documentation was lost so yeah I'm, I, I do have some of those early years Roots and Rain have 95% have of the stuff yeah so you know if anyone wants to get stuff that's where you go to get your and I and I think it's a great resource a lot of people do use it it's really good yeah yeah he does a great job and he has asked me for those extra couple of years but for the moment I I they're the part of an, a company asset so okay they're staying with me for now but they won't be with me forever that's fair enough so are you are you kind of involved live with those broadcasts in any way or do you provide data up front how does that yes. work so during cross country race for example where there's more opportunity for rob to have information fed to him because quite honestly in the downhill a rider's only on screen for a short amount of time and he's already got his notes prepared yeah and he's reacting to things that are happening so he doesn't have much time to feed it in mm -hmm. uh, whereas in a cross country he might have the same three riders on screen for 20 minutes so if i see something like uh, for example um in snowshoe I think it was Snowshoe last year. That was the first time an American male had won a cross-country race 
for a long, long time. Everyone uh-huh. knew it was a long, long time, Christopher Blevins, but they weren't sure when it was the last time. And I went back and it was 1994, Tinker okay. Juarez yeah. in Canada. And so I fed that to the line producer who then feeds it to to Rob. Uh-huh. And then you hear their reaction on the screen. He said, you know, he said to Bart Brendan, you know, when was the last American male to win across country? So I can't remember. Was it John Tomac or so it was Tinker Juarez in '94? I can't believe that's true, but it's true. Yeah, and it was true. It was that long that had been since you know, twenty what's that? Twenty-seven years. It's incredible, isn't it? So what that's important for is it gives a real context to that achievement mm. that Christopher Blevins had achieved something not just as a race win, but historically very important for mountain biking in the USA. Yeah. So when you put that result into context, it means more than just saying he won the race. Yeah. Saying someone like, this is the, the second woman who's left-handed to win in the rain, who cares? <laughs> Doesn't put the result in context. Yeah, There's another yeah. way to contextualize that victory. Yeah, She might be the first left-handed woman to win in the rain, but it means nothing. So you have to find the stats that give some gravitas or some real meaningful context to a win. So in a cross-country, I can do that more because you see, like when um, David Valera from Spain was winning, had a chance of winning. He was in the top three with one lap to go. Mm-hmm. So I looked at the top three and thought, no story there, no story there, or recent history stories there. Yeah, Everyone will know that story. But David Valero, he will not only be the first Spanish rider to win since 2010, but he's the third oldest maiden victory. Okay. So that sort of stuff. I'm looking up date of birth with half a lap to go and comparing <laughs> it and, and trying to get that stuff to the line producer so he can give it to Rob. So once he crosses the line, he can say, there he is, and then he'll say in the post-show, to Bart, you know, when was the last Spanish guy to win? He said, was it Jose Hamida? said, yeah, in 2010. So they don't have that at their fingertips. Yeah. And you've got to be able to figure out what do they need yeah. in a short period of time. So in downhill, I might be able to get something to them for the post show. Okay. So if it's the first time that a Slovakian downhill rider wins a World Cup, I can get that to them Yeah. when they might not be sure to say it was the first time. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing is you can be pretty sure when you go back to 95, but those two years before, maybe there was a Slovakian who won it down and we don't remember. Yeah. So that's where you got to contextualize it a bit. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I enjoy that work. It's, yeah. It's stats. I love it. That's cool. And we'll, yeah, we'll come back to that kind of broadcast aspect of the World Cup because that's a, a current hot mm. topic, I guess. But before we do that, another big part of what you do is not just the team management, but the athlete management side of things. And, and I'm guessing many people don't really know what that involves mm. give us a bit of a window into to that well what what i try and describe it best as is i'm an admin secretary for some of the top athletes so they don't have to worry about the admin okay you know, the stuff that can really bog them down over winter contract they're not they're not specialized at reading contracts and and getting what their market value is and that sort of thing so i help them with getting their contracts in order making sure that they're signing something that they won't regret mm-hmm. um all the way through to, you know, if they need help booking flights or doing other stuff. It's, it's, I'm there as an admin secretary for them to do the stuff that they don't really like doing mm-hmm. and to help them just focus on training and racing. Um, it's not it, Every, every relationship is a bit different. So in, say, Brooks' case, he has a Red Bull deal with New Zealand that existed before we started working together. And that's something he prefers to manage because okay. it's very personal. It's, I don't come and say, right, if I'm your manager, it's all your deals. You know, it's like work out what works. What, where do you need help? Mm-hmm. Where do you think I can help you? And uh, in Nico's case, it's helping him put together Frameworks Racing and make sure he has the funding, the budget, the contracts, and 
entering him in races and doing all that UCI stuff that he doesn't want to do all the admin stuff. He doesn't have time to do it. Yeah. It bogs him down. Just can you handle that? Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I think that's that's from years and years of working on contracts. One year I was doing 100 contracts a year. So I'm very used to contract language. When I see a 100% contract, I've read them 100 times before. I know what should be in them. Yeah. And, um, and fortunately, I have really good relationships with the person on the other side of the contract, and they're used to working with me. Okay. And, um, you know, I've seen some wording. Now, if someone's signing an Oakley contract right now, I guarantee you there's some wording in there that we introduced back in 2004 <laughs> that hasn't left. Yeah. You know, that we introduced it to them and said, actually, that's not a bad idea. We should have that in all our contracts. Okay. So, it's just… Um, Trying to take that admin stress off an athlete's table, especially as they start to get more, um, get more successful and they have more things going on. In the case of Greg, we managed Greg for 13 years mm-hmm. and then he got to a point where he said, I think for my own growth as a businessman, I need to know how to do this. Okay. So help me transition. Show me how you do it. Yeah. And it's like, go for it. You know, you, this, you, you reach that point. And the same with the Athertons when we managed them for some time. It was like... We're ready to run our own business. Let's, yeah. you know, and there's no hard feelings. I'm there to help them when they need it. Mm-hmm. They don't need it anymore. Off they go. Yeah. And you know, with Dakota, for example, he's been a bit lost a couple of times where he fits in the world, what his value is, how his sponsors are treating him, mm-hmm. and so we just sort of come in and, okay, you need a CPA, you need a proper accountant. You don't have one right now. You're going to get caught with your tax if you don't do it properly. So we help him get that set up and then find him, you know, at the end of the last year when YT left rather abruptly, you know, it was my job to go out and find him. Yeah. And we found him three really good rides and it was then his choice. Yeah. We don't say, take this deal. It's better for you, better for me. Which one sits well for you? And he yeah. says, I want to ride with Aaron. Okay, let's put it together. Yeah. So that's 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 our job. And we actually do a little graph for him. We put a, a table together of all the different components of those three contracts and how they measure up and then highlight which is the best one yeah. and then see which one has the most highlights. Okay. And then you can sort of see it, oh, there they are side by side, right? I have to read each contract. We put it in a format where he can sit there and sort of in a summarized manner go, oh, now I see why I'm leaning more to this one. It definitely yeah. has more of what I feel is good for me. Yeah. And say, so, okay, so we'll fine-tune a few bits and pieces, and but let me get on with that for you when the contract's ready for signing. Have another read of it, and then we go from there. Yeah. So that's, you know, I've had up to 10 clients, which is our max, but at the moment I'm really happy we've got four or five, and that's really where I like to keep it. Yeah. There's a couple that are not officially on the books, but we do like a mentorship role, just helping them mm-hmm. off without, you know, any payment or anything, just wanting yeah. to help them get on with their career. So yeah, that's athlete management is probably what I started this business off for originally. That was the cornerstone, managing Greg Minar, yeah. Cadell Evans, Tour de France winner was mm-hmm. no one I officially managed, but have mentorship role for 20 years. Yeah. So that was the thing I really enjoyed. And we only ever manage people that we personally feel invested in, not just if someone comes along and they present a financial opportunity to manage them. Unless I've got a connection with them and really share their goals and their vision, I'm yeah. not really interested in doing it. Yeah. So I've definitely, definitely been people contacting me for management work, but I'm, normally I'm knocking on your door before you're knocking on mine. That's like I'm pretty clear on who I want to work with. Yeah, and that's the same for team selection as well. I get mm. the impression. I think you was you said there was only one rider that you've ever signed that came to you. Yeah, yeah, that was Justin Leo. Yeah, and. Uh, and I don't regret it one little bit. It was a great relationship, and he's an amazing athlete. But 
he he shone the light on himself. I I didn't see it. Okay. Um, basically, his first podium was an Angel Fire where uh, where Greg won. So I was a little bit distracted by the fact we'd won the overall for Honda. Yeah. And forgot that Justin got on the podium for the first time there, and so he came and found me in Pilar in Italy, I think, and and uh, with his dad and walked past the tent. And he said, "Dad, that's the guy I want to manage." He said, "Well, just go in." He said, no, 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 he, he's got to come to me first. And he said, no, you go in there. And he sort of came in and said, I'm Justin. I was on the podium and said, yeah, I know who you are. So it just sort of started off and ended up being a great friendship. We held our young talent camp in New Zealand at his property. And, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, I, yeah, one of the best friends I've, I've had in the sport. Nice. Yeah, he seems like a good guy. Really down-to-earth great guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's um, Let's talk about the move from Red Bull to Discovery mm-hmm. um, and get your thoughts on that because I think you can shine some light. You, you have quite a unique um, experience with time at the UCI, time with teams, working with athletes that I think can hopefully you know, give some, some good thoughts on that. You also saw the move from Freecaster to uh, to Red Bull, which at the mm-hmm. time I think a lot of people were quite resistive of and mm-hmm. quite worried about and that seems to have turned out pretty mm-hmm. well. Um, and you were also part of that boom in the 90s where we had all these external sponsors, huge amounts of money piling in. The sport was was buzzing. The athletes were doing really well from it. And I guess this opens potentially opens some doors to that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, give us some thoughts, right? Because it's all a bit up in the air at the moment. No one really knows where we're at. And there's a lot of nervousness around it, which, you know, we're a sport that doesn't like change, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, the day that we're doing this is the day we're expecting the calendar to be announced. Uh-huh. And by the time this gets broadcast, maybe a lot of other things have come out that haven't come out yet. So it's hard to talk about things we don't know about. Yeah. So I'll keep it fairly basic. I mean, yes, our heyday in this sport was when the sport was run by an outside agency, mm-hmm. much, much like MotoGP, Formula One, other very successful series are run by an outside agency where the governing body, in this case the UCI, is responsible for regulations, commissaires, anti-doping, but the actual marketing, coordination, implementation of the events is someone else. Mm -hmm. They take the financial risk, they find the sponsorship, they put up the prize money, they pay for everything. And in this case, we're talking about discovery in ESO. Before, it was AMC. AMC was the marketing company of Grundig who came in and they paid, I think it was around 3 million Swiss francs. They gave a million to the UCI as a licensing fee. So Mm -hmm. give us the contract. I think there was a million in prize money and then the rest was their implementation costs. Yeah. Roughly. Uh, I don't want to be held to task on that, but I I have the original contract in my office that uh, was also a photocopy I kept because it was a historical document. So in that time, you saw really good prize money, saw TV coverage live on Eurosport, you know, going at, at the time, I think it was 10 or 15 million homes we were going into. And we saw teams like Volvo Cannondale, not Cannondale. We saw Toyota Schwinn. We saw Jeep sponsoring the series. The winner of the overall got a Jeep car. You know, it was, it was really, you know, Sun had their own sponsors. All these teams had big sponsors. Uh, Siemens Cannondale, I think, came later. But when you have out-of-industry sponsors, it helps the teams, it helps the riders, it helps everybody, but they won't come in unless there is more broader coverage. Yeah. And so, yes, when Red Bull came along from Freecast, there was all this bitching, oh, we love Freecast and Red Bull's going to change everything. It's only going to be Red Bull athletes. And now someone else is coming on and saying, we love Red Bull. Why are they getting rid of Red Bull? 
seems our dynamic crew of spectators and fans are resistant to change. What we've got to remember is the teams have been asking for a long, long time for the UCI to stop trying to be a sports marketing company and stop trying to run a series when actually they, you're not good at that. Mm-hmm. You're good at doing, fairly good at doing rules. <laughs> your membership is not us. Your membership are national federations, and so you're answerable to them. Yeah. So do that stuff. Do the, the good governance stuff, and then let someone else come and run this great property. So someone's come along. And now we're all complaining. <laughs> so I think the biggest problem is that in the absence of information, there's a vacuum, and vacuums breed conspiracy theories. People come out, there's only 30 men going to be in the finals, there's only going to be this, only going to be that. Where has that been written or announced? Nowhere. Someone spoke to someone who might know someone who did, you know. So what I need people to really stop and think about is that no one's coming in here to come and destroy this property. And I'm saying, I'm going to sign it up for eight years and drive it into the ground. <laughs> No, they're taking all the financial risks. They're coming in. They want it to be successful. And they're setting it up in a way that there are disciplined working groups that involve experts who will feed them information, feedback, rule changes so that they can get the right expert advice on what they need to do next. So they're not going to suddenly turn the sport upside down. They're not going to suddenly have an EWS on the same weekend as downhill. They're not going to – Next year won't look much different, mm-hmm. I don't think, to the schedule we saw this year. It will start later. Yeah. But I think, you know, they have signed an eight-year contract to run between seven to nine events per discipline. There's not going to be 15 World Cups. There's not going to be three. And they don't, if they're good business people, they're not going to come in and rock the boat just for the sake of rocking the boat. They want to pick up where we left off with Red Bull and UCI and take it further. Yeah. And that's what we all want. So I'm, you know, and if, if there was, you know, some major changes to happen, I think most of them will be good ones. Mm-hmm. I, I know from speaking to ESO directly, they will film the juniors downhill. They will film the under 23 cross country. They will film the qualifying in downhill. So you're going to see a lot more stuff and behind paywalls and all this sort of stuff. If you get Eurosport in Europe, you'll be watching it there. Uh-huh. And They'll be free to air and then there'll be pay-per-view if you don't want ads. Okay. I mean, I watch the Tour de France without, with ads and I'm happy to do that. Yeah. But if I don't want to watch ads, I can get a pay-per-view. And the same for other sports. You, the fact that you've got it for free for so long, still I can't believe that people <laughs> complain. You know, they complain about that. And, um, and it is. Red Bull did an amazing job. They've got us to this position yeah. where a, a product that can be commodified in a way that gives the fans what they really want mm-hmm. and helps the teams help help the teams grow and become more financially strong, which then helps more than just the top 10 riders. It helps riders further down the field. Yeah, Prize money used to be to 20th place during the Grundig days. I used to sit there. I had to take the cash myself to the USA, stuff it in the envelopes, and we <laughs> gave away cash at the races, right down to 20th place in men and women. Yeah, And so that is clearly going to be another benefit not immediately probably but it will grow yeah um so look i'm i'm in a role now where i'm the the cross-country team representative to eso okay so i represent all the elite teams and some other ones like alpacine phoenix and um, prima floor mondraker that are in our group i think there are 18 of us now and we meet and then we take our issues to eso directly and they respond and Mm -hmm. they're they're 
you know, they're, they're dealing with a lot right now. They're, they're releasing the calendar today, so we'll see what that brings. And then there'll be more information about team fees and, you know, everyone's saying team fees are going to go through the roof. Teams will continue to register with the UCI as they always have. The UCI is the body for registration, not ESO. But there may be marketing fees. There may be other things. So we have to wait and see what mm-hmm. that brings. And, um, you know, but I don't see any dramatic change because they would be shooting themselves in the foot. But I do think it was a mistake for Chris to go on Pink Bike and do an AMA when he didn't have the answers. Yeah, it was too early, right? It was too early. And, and that then creates more doubt. So don't, you don't need to do that now. Don't need, wait till the announcements come out and then do an AMA based on the information you've already released and expand on that. Yeah. But everyone knew the first question was going to be what's happening with Rob Warner. Now, I know Rob really well, and we all knew that he'd signed with Red Bull to continue with them because that's where he's most happy. It's where he likes doing his work, and they've got the Hardline series and other stuff. So all you have to do is say, we would love to have had Rob, but he's chosen to stay with Red Bull, and we fully respect that, Yeah, and we're going to do our best to replace him. And that would be it because he is the voice of mountain biking right now. But the look at the time actually comes from Peter Graves, who was the voice of mountain biking in 1990. He used to say, <laughs> look at the time. And so we all were really sad when Peter Graves was no longer on the circuit. Yeah. And now this generation is going to be really sad when Rob isn't on the circuit. But the circuit kept going and the racing kept going and the racing's at the best it's ever been, in my opinion, right now. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So that's the real essence of the, the recipe is the racing. That's yeah. who's calling it. Because we're talking about English speaker. There's other speakers speaking in other languages and commentating, and they're not understanding this Rob Warner drama, you know, because <laughs> they don't even listen to him. They listen to someone else. They listen to Spanish, Portuguese, or German commentary. So yeah. I, I think, yes, Rob will always be the voice, tr- the soundtrack or the voice of the racing of the last 15 years. For sure. Um, and who knows what happens in the future. But we can't think that the whole thing is going to grind to a halt because one commentator isn't going to be there. It's, it'll take some adjustment. There are some commentators on sports that I watch that I don't really like. Mm-hmm. But I, I put that to the side because I'm there to watch the sport, you know. And you, you can – so I, I think – I don't know who they'll replace him with. I have no idea. Um, and, you know, it would be nice if Elliot was still there too. Uh, Tracy, I mean, they've got some very, you know, Bart, they've got some very good commentators, technical commentators who know yeah. their stuff. Yeah. You know, lately when Elliot adds technical content to Rob's commentary, it's very informative. He does get around the pits. He talks to people. He can talk very confidently firsthand on someone's opinions, mm-hmm. which I don't think we got with some of the other technical commentators. So yeah. I think Elliot's you know, been a great asset this year. And uh, and Tracy has been improving race after race. Yeah, for sure. So there's some, some positives then for, certainly for fans, if we're going to get more coverage, I guess the, the the risk is that we're having to pay for that. Do you think, do you think that could impact? Well, I mean, it will impact numbers to some extent, but it also there are a lot of people that subscribe to that product that maybe don't watch mountain biking right now that might, that might get into it, I guess. We've definitely seen a crossover in cross-country numbers once Matthew uh, Matthew Vanderpoel and Tom Pidcock came across, uh-huh. they brought a lot of cyclocross and road fans over who stayed, yeah. who went, wow, this is great racing. I like this, and they've stayed. So they've benefited from crossover. I think Downhill will also benefit from being on a more available channel like Eurosport. Most 
most people in Europe have some sort of digital package that includes Eurosport. Yeah. They don't have to get on a laptop with a link and try and find Red Bull and when's it live and when's it not live. Mm-hmm. They can just be channel surfing and find it. And, and I know that for a fact that one of my mechanics, his father can never find the link <laughs> and he never sees the racing, but he watches anything on Eurosport. He loves it. So yeah. I automatically think our audience will grow straight away just from that alone, from yeah. people who, or, who aren't going to have to pay extra. They already got it on their package. Mm-hmm. And um, so for me, that's, you know, when I think about when I was technical delegate trying to get our race starts ready for a live Eurosport broadcast and the producer was in my ear saying, we are going to 10 million homes. Can you please get this track ready? He's like, <laughs> it was scary. We were going to 10 million homes. That's what he kept saying to me. I don't know if that was the exact number or what, <laughs> or what but that's how they saw it. And, uh, and, and if you watch, like I'm watching some Discovery Sports packages now, like the Speedway motorcycle racing which i used to watch as a kid in australia haven't watched speedway for 30 years but the way they've repackaged it and presented it it looks fresh brand new and it's very entertaining and i'm back in i'm hooked on it again you know whereas speedway is really the the poor cousin of motocross and motor gp they're now elevating it they've taken a product that was probably not being well handled and elevated it so i think they're getting a product that's very well handled at the moment but could always improve and um you know, ESO and O. I mean, working with Helen Mortimer and Chris Ball, these these are downhill riders, and they know the sport. And then there's Simon Lillystone and other people who've got experience in cross country and other types of cycling. So they're not just, you know, the discovery people. I don't know so well, but the ESO people I know, and I, I believe that they're they will do the best job possible. Yeah. And do you think? I mean, obviously, getting it in front of more eyes opens opportunities for sponsorship. Oh, absolutely. That side of things. So both riders and teams should benefit and fans ultimately yeah. benefit from that side of things and hopefully bring in some big name sponsors again. Mm. Do you think there'll be a monetary stream sort of from discovery as well into the teams to help? Because if we're traveling further afield, if there are more rounds, all of this stuff costs to the teams. And at the minute, I think budgets are pretty tight, right? We're, we're yeah. unusual as a sport in that we're in fully bike industry funded pretty much. Yeah. I think that's very, that's very important right now. We're totally dependent on the industry. We're very fortunate that our industry's had a good couple of years, and but that's not always the case. Um, I think it's always helpful for the people in the marketing departments of bike companies to be able to go go back and show the, the coverage the sport is getting to the people who allocate them their budgets. But yeah, like I say, you know, the Volvo Cannondale team had the best riders on the team because of the finances that Volvo brought to the team. You know, Cannondale was the bike brand, but the same as the Tour de France. It's only, I think it's really only Trek that is the title of their team. All the other teams have other titles yeah. and ride different bikes, uh, ride bikes, but they have a, a, a non-industry uh, title sponsor. So that's because of the coverage that they get mainly in Europe, to be honest, but they get a lot of coverage worldwide with the Tour de France. So I think the more coverage we get, mainstream coverage, obviously it helps. You know, the the number of people that watch a Red Bull race, whether it's 80,000 or whatever it is live, mm-hmm. just just doesn't compare to what Discovery Sports can achieve. Yeah, It's just a simple fact. And I I know that Red Bull love this property and they put their heart and soul into it. It was something that they've, you know, started off a really big learning curve, um, but they're super passionate about it, super knowledgeable. And they've arrived at that point, and I'm sure that the UCI had to sit down with both parties and we'll figure out which one had the, the best possible 
future for the sport yeah. and um, and they've chosen. I'm not privy to any of those, so I don't know, but I, I have to trust that someone at the UCI has gone, this is the right way forward. Everything you're presenting for us makes sense. Mm-hmm. Let's go that route. Yeah. So you have to judge that they're not just going to throw that discipline in the toilet by just signing a check. They, yeah. they, want, they want the future of the sport to be retained. Ultimately, the UCI will decide the calendar. They'll decide how many races there'll be. It's their calendar. Yeah. It's their discipline. It's their rule book. They, the rule changes that we've just submitted from the cross-country teams, we submit them to ESO so they can see if there's any operational things they need to take into account. Mm-hmm. Say we wanted a rule change that said we, we only want one lap races from now on that need to be 36K each lap. Stupid idea, but say that was our suggestion. ESO would have to stop and think and go, hang on, from our point of view, we can't televise that. So we really strongly recommend you don't put that rule change forward. Yeah. So we submitted our rule changes. No glitches, no warnings, no worries, and that's gone on to the UCI now for consideration. And that's how it used to be with AMC back in the day. If we said uh, we we came up with a rule change that said actually that doesn't work for TV production, mm-hmm. or can you please get the eighty percent rule in for TV production? So they'll have input, and they'll come with a different view. We look at it from a very sporting point of view yeah. for our athletes, for how it functions. That we don't want to lose the essence of the sport. If they would come and say, from now on, downhill will be three races every Sunday. You know, best of three runs or something. I was like, That's not what downhill is. It's one and done. Yeah. So we're not going to have those conversations. These people are too close to the sport to come up with stupid ideas. But you have to have that interaction and that conversation, which we do have right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think this, um, the extra funding that will hopefully come in will help us get to kind of parity, male to female, on, on salary? Because certainly back in the late 90s, Right, the top women riders were getting paid as much, or in some instances, more than the guys. Right, um, one or two women, yes, mm-hmm. but then it dropped off greatly. Okay, right, you know, it wasn't parity for the top ten. Yeah, uh, someone like Missy, you know, she was a very highly paid athlete because she she transcended the sport. She was more. She was on late night TV shows. You know, she was she was a bit of an extreme sports athlete icon. Yeah, not necessarily a mountain biker, um, but I think. Yes, that that will come. That has to come. Right now, there's parity in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. We're one of the very few sports for the last years that have run both male and female athletes on the same course, on the same day, in the same broadcast, yeah. for the same winning prize money, same winning points, all these sorts of things. Whereas you look at golf and tennis and stuff, unless it's a grand slam, they're all different places, skiing, different places, yeah. athletics, maybe different distances, all this sort of stuff. Whereas we've had parity I think in many areas, yep. the one where we haven't, I think, is probably the depth of prize money. Yeah. Um, where we used to have that, for sure, in the 90s, which many sports didn't. Same prize money, men and women. Um, I'm not sure if it's – I have to think about that. They may be back to parity on prize money. But for salaries, for sure, there's definitely been a big difference there. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot of the time is – for a top team, there's only so many top female riders available. When you have a, a big depth of field in a category, whether it's gender or age, mm-hmm. if you've got a big depth of field, you have more choice of you know, how many women can win a race this week? Six, one of six, one of seven. Yeah. In men, it could be one of 15 or 20. Yeah. So when you have that depth, there's more opportunity for a team to get a top rider. So if you have 15 top teams, but there's only eight women that can win a race in a weekend, there are eight teams that aren't going to have a potential race winner. Yeah. 
we need to get to a point where all of the teams have, if that's what they want, a potential race winner in any category. Yeah. So I would love to have a team with two top men, a top woman, a top junior, all who have an equal chance, pretty much like Santa Cruz have right now. Yeah, yeah. That, to me, is the perfect team. There just aren't enough in the other categories, and also junior men, yeah. to get you to that point. And so I think once the prize money and exposure increases, more people come in to do the sport. Yeah, yeah. And you'll have, you won't have these small fields. When I saw some of the field numbers for Monsignan, it was kind of depressing to see how many, like all the... There was no women eliminated. I think there were only 15 women racing in Monsignan. Yeah. We want to see 45 women racing in Monsignan. And then when that happens, they'll open up the category top 15 to being top 20 go through and all that sort of stuff. And I think a big part of that is exposure. How do people find out about our sport? Yeah. Unless they find the Red Bull link, how do they find us? And um, unless it's word of mouth or something or a family member. Mo I remember in the time that most of the women riders who were racing you were introduced by a father or an older brother. Yeah. You know, Tracy, Ed Mosley, um, you have you know, Rachel with her brothers, and a lot of them were coming in because they'd been introduced to it by someone else they knew. Yeah. Whereas if they find it, like I found road cycling accidentally as a 15-year-old in the newspaper or on TV, then maybe we'd get more, more women and more junior men. And junior women are growing too at the moment, really. That's really encouraging. We're seeing a lot more junior women. They've had to change the schedule to allow the junior women to, to have more time for, for racing. So I think we're on a really good upward trend. Yep. And, and, and all the teams would love to pay their riders more mm -hmm. if there was more money coming into the teams. You know? and Let's hope that's going to change. Sounds like it should. Yes, but there may also be, like you said, added costs of traveling to venues or marketing costs, mm -hmm. you know, to have the marketing, you know, ESO will own the marketing rights. Are we able to use footage from the races? Yeah. Will that cost money? If it does, how much? How many teams will be able to afford that? So those questions we don't know the answers to, so I'm not going to invent them, which a lot of people are out there inventing right now because they don't know. So <laughs> yeah. you just got to wait for the information to come out and then make your decisions. That's fair. Are there, are there particular things on the downhill side that you think would be beneficial to change? Like if you were running the sporting piece of things, are there certain elements that you, you think would, we would benefit from? Well, I had a, a different model for running World Cups that I proposed to the team some years ago. And we're kind of hearing that it might be heading that way. But what I was trying to do was create a bit of a structure for the, the riders from 20 onwards down who don't seem to get as much airtime or recognition. So I thought, you know, we could have a category, a bit like MotoGP has Moto2 and then mm -hmm. Moto3, why we couldn't have WC1, WC2, and WC3 would be juniors. Yeah. But the WC2 would be the riders who weren't in the top 20 from last year. Uh -huh. The top 20 from last year get a WC1 license and they're protected and they're always on Sunday. Yeah. But on Saturday, you have a WC2 race with its own podium and everything and they get recognized for that race, which is almost like a qualifier, but it's that um, separate to the WC1 guys and the podium guys join the WC1 the next day. And so they can move cross over. Okay. So it's sort of a way to give an extra podium, an extra race to the weekend that meant more than just qualifying. And yes, TV were asking for less riders on TV. And if you actually take a survey of a lot of people, when you see the ratings, the ratings suddenly shoot up when the last 15 are on. People don't watch always from the beginning of yeah. a broadcast. Yeah. So, okay, how do we make that more entertaining? How do we include all the riders, give them a chance to be... So I just came up with the idea. And it was considered too different, mm -hmm. too much of a change to the sport. I, I still believe that it's got a place that 
the the second tier riders are our bread and butter and they need to be at the races the the organizers want them there the hotels want them there we want them all there we don't just want a field of 30 riders going to bike races and as you've seen so far this year many guys who performed well in uh, gone through from qualifying to do really well in the final so yeah. You know, maybe it could be even more than that. You know, maybe ten, the top 10 from the WC2 race go through and make a 30 or a 40 field on Sunday. But it's just a concept to play around with. And, mm -hmm. and, and you, you do one year and then you see if that works and say, no, we could probably increase that or decrease it. Yeah. But it was to give a, a podium on Saturday to people who don't normally get on the podium and then give them an opportunity to race the, the WC1 licensed riders the next day. So copying MotoGP a little bit, but the crossover was a new idea. Okay. And it was to so it wasn't just an elite club that only the big boys raced on Sunday. That was the same twenty all year. That would be boring. You'd want to see someone coming back from injury. You'd want to see different things like that. But I don't think you want to lose the the start field being big. I don't think we want to get to a point where it's only thirty bike riders coming for the men and fifteen for the women for the whole weekend. Yeah, that that's we are the World Cup is the pinnacle of the sport. And it should always be. Yeah. But it shouldn't be so elitist that there's no way to break into it. I think there's a real thing to be said for national series and and crankworks and IXS as a feeder system to identify young talent and to bring them into the World Cup. You shouldn't start your racing career at World Cups and expect that to be the starting point. Yeah. But there needs to be more than just the elite few. So finding a way to make that work will be an evolutionary process. And we're still, we used to be like 180 starters with 120 going through or something. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can't do that with a modern TV product. And someone like Discovery Sports will want a packaged product that works week after week that mm -hmm. doesn't look too weird or different or change too much. They want something that. You know, the fans can loyally come back and go, I recognize these people. I saw them last week. These are the people I've got to know. Yeah. Rather than a whole batch of different riders, which it wouldn't be. But, you know, you've got to understand their point of view as well. We want to take your sport to the next level. There are some things that we might have to change. But so far, we've not heard that officially. There's definitely rumors out there. So yeah. you just have to wait till the official information comes out. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you mentioned crankworks. They're worth pointing out that, you know, Red Bull haven't fallen out of love with mountain biking. No. If I don't know what happened, whether they just couldn't reach the levels of discovery or discovery were able to offer things Red Bull, you know, couldn't across development opportunities and stuff. But Red Bull are still here and they're still very much invested in our sport. Yeah. So actually this gives us opportunity to have, you know, the Red Bull backing behind maybe some, some events that wouldn't have that full force of Red Bull before. So maybe we'll have more televised sure. racing at different levels and you know opportunities for riders to get exposure still on red bull tv mm -hmm. at other races yeah so. hardline and all those things so yeah no i think that's very much the case and um i i don't see our sport diminishing through this i see it growing so i think yes there might be some bumps and some obstacles and things to negotiate but generally we all want the same thing mm -hmm. we want the sport to flourish and we want the athletes to you know i think you know, seeing the riders' union and all these sort of things come up lately, this is because they're passionate about what they want to do and what they want to get out of the sport and they need to be listened to. Yeah. And uh, and there needs to be a forum for that. There needs to be a mechanism to take on their concerns and listen to what, you know, what I saw in Andorra personally as a former technical delegate and as a team owner and a manager of athletes was sketchy as hell. That should not have been allowed to happen, that bridge across the finish to uh -huh. the finish line. Not just the landing, the entry into it. Everything was wrong about that. Yeah. Should never have happened. I had a strong discussion with the technical delegate 
delegate there and we respect each other greatly and I don't try and come in and say, look, in my day, I don't do that. But from my eye, that was wrong. Yeah. And we were lucky that someone didn't get seriously injured or worse. And that stuff can't happen. That can't continue to happen, especially with a growing audience. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, so we really need to get that button down and the writers have every right to stand up and say, hey, we, we, need, we need our voice heard. Yeah. And um, so I, I support them fully on that. I think there's a way to do it. I don't think, you know, run, putting on yellow jackets and setting off flares <laughs> is the way to go. And it doesn't feel like that's where it's going either, no, which is no, good. No, that's an extreme example. But there is a process and there are rider reps. And if the rider rep there isn't the right one, change it. You guys can do that. Yeah. And, and get in the system and get the work done. There is an avenue to get it done. Yeah. There are athletes on each of these discipline working groups within ESO who can bring all those points forward. They need to be done. I Every track course or every track walk I did for a World Cup pre-opening it to training was with the athlete's rep. Okay. I, all, I, I can't profess to know how long a jump needs to be or a breaking point, all that. I need someone's expert advice. Yeah. So I was amazed that the athletes weren't walking with the technical delegates. And the reason... I understood it to be is they'd prefer to walk during course walk when they were doing their Instagram stories and their videos and other things and they don't want to walk the course twice. Okay, that's fine, but you need to put up at least one person, rotate it every week if you have to, Yeah. but you can't complain about something that you had an opportunity to have input on the yeah. day before yeah, or yeah. even earlier than that. Maybe there should be an athlete at the site inspection the year before, Yeah. which was what we also did back in the day. But we had budget back in the day. Back in the 90s, you know, I could I could tap into a healthy World Cup budget to take yeah. an athlete with me to a... Because site. you had Grundig behind it exactly. and the sponsorship money. and yeah. Exactly. I remember taking Greg. I remember taking Cadell Evans to Olympic site inspections because I need their feedback. I need their honest opinion about whether this course will work or not. Yeah. I don't have... I'm there to do other stuff, finish area, parking area, media, blah, blah, blah. But the actual technical aspect of the course... I wasn't a top-level rider, so I couldn't give my... So I would take Mercedes Gonzalez, Buster Beaver, different riders, and um, I was shocked that wasn't really happening. Now I've seen it's just started to happen because I've heard Win interview riders on Win TV saying, so you walked the tr track yesterday, yesterday with the UCI. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, That's really helpful. Yeah. And I think that's a big step forward, but the more they continue to do, the better. Yeah, definitely. Lots of things that can be improved, but yeah. already uh, an incredible incredible sport and uh and great for the fans as it is so yeah looking forward to seeing how that progresses we're getting uh close to the end of our time there's right. so much to chat about mm -hmm. and it's, it's been very hard to kind of whittle it down and work out what to cover but i've really enjoyed what we have got to i'm interested to hear what your plans are for the future because you've been kind of away from the racing scene a little bit you're helping nico obviously with the the framework side of things very much still involved at that level, you've been to some races for various meetings, and clearly a fan that you know you're 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 consuming pretty much all the content that's available and keeping in touch. Where do you see yourself going with the sport? Um, right now, managing athletes, doing this new role with ESO and cross country teams, Nico's team, Frameworks, as you said, Red Bull contract—they're keeping me busy. There's no question. But I'd love to go racing again with the team, and uh, I haven't actively gone looking for a particular team or sponsor but i've had to come to me which is fortunate in the last where are we now five months okay in the last five months there have been two different companies who've come to me and asked for management services which at the end of the day i'm very happy to look at 
but I'll only do it if I feel it makes sense to the story of our company and what we do. Yeah. So it won't be just taking a gig because there's a gig on offer. It has to ring true to me that this makes sense and it's part of our our story as well. Yeah. So um, I'm really encouraged with, with both of them so far. Um, and I don't know if it's possible to do both or just the one or maybe we don't do either. But I'm encouraged by the fact that we've done enough in the sport that people are seeking us out and I don't think that will stop for a while yeah and um but on the other hand after such a long run it's been a really nice year not to be on the circuit especially the last two covid years yeah we're extremely stressful and and not fun i wasn't enjoying being at the races yeah masked up and banned from talking to other people and just wasn't what you wasn't what anyone signs up for i'm sure no one enjoyed that but i just felt it was a good time to to reflect and Unfortunately, have these other great projects that are keeping me busy. So the worst thing is not being busy. So I think, um, yeah, you'll see us in the race paddock for sure with another program. I can't say when, but it will happen. Good stuff. That, that's the goal. Yeah, more uh, more victories to be fought for. Yeah, I mean that's 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 the that's the drug of choice. You know, that's that's <laughs> yeah. that's the one that gets me out of bed every morning and. Uh, you know, I get I get so wound up even after all these years that when we're in for a, for a victory, you know, I'm I'm as stressed out as I've been from day one of doing this job. It's so it never gets old. Honestly, it never gets old walking over to the team manager's area at the finish line of a World Cup finals day when you're in the play for a good result. It's it your adrenaline goes. You you know, it's uh, probably need a Xanax if I'm honest. You know, <laughs> like it gets me that wound up. So, uh, yeah, I, you can't give up that. That's if, if you have the opportunity to do it again and it presents itself, you'd be mad not to, you know. Yeah. At some point, you've got to think about, okay, where do I want to be in 15 years from now? But right now, I'm looking forward to going racing. Good stuff. That's good to hear. We're going to wrap up with our final four questions. Before we do that, I'd just like to get your thoughts on how mountain biking is doing. So where do you think it's doing really well and where do you think there are uh, areas that we could improve on in general maybe it doesn't have to be racing specific it could be more the industry and the sport as a whole well that's that's a very broad question for me to answer on the industry i never profess to be an expert on that Uh i i speak to racing that's what i do yeah i i'm i'm not here to tell people how to sell bikes uh, that that's their job I'll, I'll give them a result and i'll give them feedback on product performance and then they can do what they want with it yeah um so for me racing side it's all about safety concussions welfare of the athletes yeah um and um and continue to market the sport in the direction it's going keep it growing yeah i mean if a lot of the people who are listening to this weren't around in the 90s uh, when there were huge trucks and pits and investors and VIP hospitality areas as part of a team area. Yeah. They were great days and they are days that are experienced by other sports similar to us. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be back there enjoying those uh, accolades and investments. Yeah. So that's what I look forward to. I've lived through that and I've been in the darkest days where we were all in sprinters and easy ups. Yeah. 
and we're getting back to where we were. And I think we just need to carry on that momentum so that the people who deserve it benefit from it. And that means that athletes that do all this hard work get paid what they deserve to be paid. Yeah. I'm sometimes frustrated by my team budget knowing that I should be paying more, but I don't have the money to do it. You want to pay these people more, including the mechanics and other people who they're, – they're seasonal workers. You're asking them to work for 16 weeks of the year. How are they – supporting themselves outside of that yeah especially on a private team when you don't provide them with a factory job at the factory you know it's you want to be able to give them more job security and with that you know with more success and exposure we'll have the ability to at least go talk to sponsors outside the industry and say hey have you considered us look at did you see us on eurosport last sunday yeah this is what we do and try and give them the opportunity so that that's something yeah i look forward to that happening i look forward to better safety and, and concussion protocols and things like that. Definitely an area that there's there's a lot of discussion on and some technology moves that might enable improvements as well. So Yeah, I've yeah. seen some of these things where I would actually, if I started a new downhill team, would make it mandatory that we use it on all our helmets, all our athletes. I yeah. think that technology is coming where the teams will be able to use it as a, a very helpful tool in doing the right thing by their athletes. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be good to see more of that for sure. Well, let's yeah, let's hit these final four questions. The first of those, if our listeners add 150 pounds, which is about 180 euros at the current exchange rate, to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they go and spend it on? I've heard you ask this question before, and I've I've thought if you ask me that, I'm going to be prepared, and I forgot <laughs> to get prepared. Um, yeah, I think. I think I think it's I think rubber's one of the key things. Yeah. I really think just buy a lot of rubber that you like and get that in the garage and have enough for your training and everything. The rubbers, if a rider doesn't have confidence in the rubber on their bike, you, they really suffer. Mm-hmm. They can always adjust the suspension and do other stuff, but get some good quality rubber. Yeah. All right. All motorsport as well. And yeah. All, you it's know. it's the contact point. It's yeah. the, it's it's it determines bike races, car races. It's key. Yeah. For sure. Second one, if you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Uh, probably have a bit more fun. Uh-huh. Like, like go out and socialise a bit more and stop being an adult at 16. <laughs> I was too much of a hurry to grow up. Like, what, like I say, to be employed at 20 to be a CEO of a sports federation, I didn't understand what 20 was. For me, I was the oldest I'd ever been. Yeah. So I was racing to be an adult. I wanted to go out and do stuff. I wish... I, you know, I see the lives of the 16-year-olds here in Andalusia in Spain and how much fun they have. I think, damn, I should have done more of that. Just gone out and had a bit more fun. Yeah. And, uh, but I didn't. I was too busy trying to be a grown-up. Do you think you could still be where you are today if you'd started that journey a little bit later? No. No. And I remember thinking at one point, like, even if my career ended now, I've done enough and I'm happy. You know, so... I, no, I was definitely, like I keep calling it, that empire building time when you're trying to establish yourself and work out where you want to go. So no, I, I wouldn't change a thing of that. And even the things that went wrong for me wouldn't change any of it. Yeah. And I know that's really cliched. I wouldn't change a thing. Sure, there might be one or two things I would change. But fundamentally, though, the biggest lessons I learned were also the things that put me in the best position to grow. Yeah, yeah. All right. If you could have a coaching session with anyone, past or present, what would it be and what would you want to learn from them? And we've kind of opened this up a bit, I guess, to maybe a riding and a non-riding side. Yeah. Because <sighs> you hang out with some of the most talented riders in the world for the last 15 or 20 years, right? Well, 
Yeah, I mean, I probably no, I don't really have an answer for that one. Like, okay, you mean like a coach for me, like what I would want for me as a coach? Either, either something, a rider that you'd want to take something from and learn how they do to apply to your own riding, oh. or someone. No, in life that no, could Mana, help you Mana, like if he ever opened up a life coaching business i'd sign up straight away so not even just a ride-in the life coach life coach yeah. how, how does he juggle everything he juggles yeah and still stay so calm and mellow and not stress out like i do uh-huh like my anyone who knows me really well you ask brooke or anyone they or nico just stop stressing like i do stress too much okay. and i would love to know how he handles everything that he handles including winning bike races at the highest level, running businesses and doing all the things he does and stay so calm with it, you know? And it might be that youngest child or eldest child thing, but if he opened a life coach business, I'd sign up. Interesting. Can he can he fit another business into the schedule? No, I'm thinking probably about 15 years from now he <laughs> might do that. Awesome. Good stuff. Yeah. All right, then. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Is there something that's a ritual for you? Siesta. Yeah? Without a doubt. Two things. I take Suffy, my dog, for a walk for... 30, 40 minutes every day, which is a time where I use to organize my brain, what I need to get done, what can wait, what has to be done straight away, what I can leave for a month or two. So I run all that through my head while we're walking. And then the siesta, I have to be able to do that. And that's from living here. Obviously, in Spain, it's a ritual in the south of Spain, especially. But I think it's also very healthy. And I break my day up for European work or catching up on Asia, Australia work in the morning. I go home have lunch, have a siesta, come back and work in the evening for the US work uh-huh. and uh, or North American work. So that to me has been a great thing. And it's only a 20-minute sleep and I don't even need to use an alarm. I just go to sleep at night. And if I pause the TV and go backwards and see how long I've been asleep for, it's been exactly 20 minutes every time. No way. So never have trouble waking up, never yeah. have trouble going to sleep. It's a, But it recharges the battery. It's better than any caffeinated product. I like it. And then a couple of little extras – any advice that you would give to someone looking to move into the more organizational side of you know the team environment uh expect the unexpected <laughs> you know do not do not think there is a simple floor plan for this it's really you know if you've spoken to Gabe recently and there are other team managers out there I really respect who've had a completely different path to me to get here do things in a different way there's no set formula be your own person. Be honest up front with your staff and riders at all times um, about all the issues that affect them. And then also learn when to be a duck, to paddle like crazy underneath and look still and calm on top. Yeah. Because there are times when you will be dealing with completely unforeseen circumstances, whether it's a, a volcano in Iceland or a, a pandemic, there's something that will throw a curveball. And also have a financial cushion. Do, uh-huh. not, do not live from paycheck to paycheck with a team. It can't work. You have to build up a, uh, a bit of a, a cushion financially, like most, like you say, most households do. <clears throat> but it's a bit more significant when you're running a million-dollar program that you cannot run from week to week. You've got to be able to forecast when you expect to get your money in. Yeah. You know when you're paying money out and then just have a big fat buffer in there so that when things don't work, you don't struggle and you don't have to go to someone and say, sorry, I can't pay you this week. Yeah. Never want to do that. You do not want to be known as the team manager that doesn't pay people on time. Not good. Not good. And and they, the riders, the staff, they all talk. They yeah. all, all get together at the bar after the race and say, you know, I haven't been paid for two months or this, that, and the other. And that, that gets around the paddy. You've got to be meticulous with your staff payments, especially as a private team. 
And um, so I, I, I've always, you know, said that to Nico when we sat down with Frameworks and looked at the budgets and said, let's do a budget forecast. Here's when you'll be paying for accommodation. Here's where you'll be paying for pit space. Here's when you'll be paying for airline tickets. Now let's look at when we need to structure these contracts to bring in the income mm -hmm. to be ahead of all of that. And so before you even write your contracts, you need to know when the deadlines are for payments. Most sponsors, and I would say 90% pay on time. Yeah. And, uh, but just that 10%, it might be one of your big ones. And he might be two months late for reasons he can't control. Yeah. You've got to be able to cover that. And you don't want to be the guy ringing up two days after due date saying, please give me some money. I'm desperate. You know, you've got yeah, to yeah. have your shit together. So that's something I'm really proud of, of being someone that's probably too organized. But that's one thing that you have to get right. Yeah. And as I learned from my very first year of paying bills and juggling money, you've got to have a plan for that, especially when you're dealing with a big budget. Good advice. And the other thing, you know, ex currency exchange, if you're dealing with people paying you in dollars and most of your expenses in euros, you've got to have two bank accounts. You've got to watch those exchange rates. You've got to know when to move money around. Yeah. I spent most of my team during Trek and YT days looking at bank exchange rates, working out when to move money around. Yeah. Because a 5% change in currency exchange on a million dollars. It's a big number. It's a number that, and it's just out the door. Yeah. There's nothing to show for it. Yeah. So, yeah, all that stuff is learnt in progress you know for sure and then what about on the rider side if, we're, if we've got young riders listening that are you know trying to work their way up within the sport any kind of advice for them don't send me a CV by email come to me at the bike race introduce yourself tell me more about yourself uh -huh. because everyone can make a CV look great and I don't need to know your results I know your results you know yeah if you've got a chance of getting on one of your teams yeah. you've spotted them already yeah, right? yeah I read results every week yeah. of every race and so I you know, make notes of names. That's when I first saw Laurie's name was when he was a really, really young kid and racing in Fort William. So already knew the name. Yeah. And so, yeah, I really respect a rider that's got the gumption because it can be intimidating to walk up to a pit area and say, can I please see the team manager? I'd like to introduce myself. But that shows, you know, some strength in character. And yeah. it shows some belief in your ability to, to market yourself. So... I've always, you know, Elliot Jackson did that with me. I've, I've, there's lots of writers who've done it. It doesn't always work out, but it changes your view on that person a lot that they have that, you know. So I'm, when I think of all the writers that I've probably hired, nearly all of them apart from Aaron with YT, have, I've gone to them. Yeah. Rather, you know, you know, Aaron came to me in a different circumstance, but I've normally known, but I really, a name will stick with me a lot more so that's that kid that came to see me two years ago. Look uh -huh. where he is now. You know, like I, I will, I will remember them a lot more than a CV, and uh, I do get a lot of CVs. Yeah. So, and I know that's a fairly traditional way, and you can't always get to a bike race. You know, especially if you're in the UK as a junior, you're not going to get to Lenza High to come and say hi. But if you can do it, yeah. Or if, or if the big teams are coming to the UK to do a Fort William National. Go introduce yourself then, you know, but there are ways to do it. You've got to make a mark. You've got to remember you're not the only person sending a CV. You're not the only junior getting on a podium in a national race. Yeah. Lots of juniors are doing that. You've got to find a way to stand out and, uh, and that's usually the way. Yeah. All right. Good advice. I guess it's worth mentioning that if people are in this uh, area of Spain, there are opportunities here for them to come hire a bike, get some riding done. Yeah. I mean, we live in a pretty amazing part of the world here in Sierra Nevada, the national park. There's unlimited kilometers of trails out here we've got the greg minar track that people often refer to it as that here in la zubia we've got our test track in motril we provide an uplift service with the buggy so we do a bit of everything here we're not a 
full-time bike shop. We're not a full-time rental center. We're not a full-time museum, but we have all of that here. And so it's an experiential thing. Like mm -hmm. if you come in as a fan of the sport and you get to see these very special bikes, it's nice to see them. And it's nice to see that they're still preserved and looked after. And we're speaking to um, Jonesy from Dirt Magazine. How many of the important bikes have been sold off or broken up for parts and stuff that don't still exist? Yeah. So, you know, that he said, I'm really happy you've kept this Aaron Gwynn bike from 2012 that won the overall. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, not many people do this anymore. And so it's always been in my mind to preserve history. So we have probably, I don't know, 10 really interesting historical bikes here. Yeah. So on top of that, yeah, you can rent a Trek or a YT bike here and uh, we've got everything from electric to downhill and um, and we do the uplift service and beautiful hotel you stayed in across the road. And, yeah, it's stunning. Yeah. Uh, so it's really a special part of the world. I'm happy to live here. Definitely. What's the website if people want to check it out? Well, I think the easiest way actually is people just type in the number 23 and then the letters <laughs> HQ. Okay. And Google just takes you to 23HQ. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you just go to 23degreesports.com, uh, there's a little tab for 23HQ. Yeah. And it just explains what we do. Perfect. So, yeah. Good stuff. And Good what man. if people want to follow on Instagram? Where's the best account for them to look? Uh, I think my personal account's at Captain23MW and uh, the. 23 HQ, I think it's at 23 couple of underscores at HQ. Okay. Someone already had at 23 HQ. Someone actually in the United Arab Emirates, and they haven't used it for seven years, and I've been writing to them and saying, please, can you give this to me? That's frustrating. No, they won't give it to me. But anyway, I think if you go into, most people are in mountain biking. If they go into Instagram and just do the, the A and 23, I think HQ is the next thing that comes up. Yeah. I don't think there's too many accounts like cool. that. So. Well, I'll stick links uh, to all of that in the show notes. People yeah. can find it nice and easily. But yeah, thank you for inviting me out here. Thank you for hosting. Uh, it's been a lovely couple of days. It's been great to see all the history here, some incredible bikes and jerseys and kits. And uh, I think I'm quite a, a geeky fan of the sport, but you've told me stories that I didn't know as well. <laughs> so it's been uh, it's been really great. Thank you, Martin. It's been a pleasure, mate. Nice one. Thank Cheers. You. Cheers. All right, that's it for this episode with Martin. I really hope you've enjoyed it. A massive thank you to Wahoo for supporting this episode of the show. If you want to get your training on track, then Wahoo have got you covered with reliable and robust technology like heart rate monitors, bike computers, trainers, and your one-stop shop, the Element Rival GPS Watch. You can find out all about them and get your hands on them over at wahoofitness.com. Here's a few other links that might be useful to you. Downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you don't miss an episode forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some merch and forward slash EP if you'd like to get your hands on copies of our lovely print project, Downtime EP. As always, spread the word and make sure as many people as possible are listening. That's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. Ride.